Good morning, church. Good to see you all this morning. We're going to study God's word together, so I hope you have a Bible with you. Go ahead and open it up to Genesis. We're back in Genesis. Uh, seems like it's been so long. So we've spent several weeks here in Genesis, and now we're, we're back. So Genesis chapter 3 is where we're going to be. Uh, just turn to the opening pages of your Bible, and we're picking up where we left off. All right, Genesis 3, we got a lot to cover. There's so much here, just, just seven verses, but there's so much here. We're just going to dive right in. I hope you're ready. Here we go. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read if you'd follow along. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom, so she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Let's pray. God, open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word and to be transformed by the truth of what is here. These, all of these texts we've been walking through these past several weeks are such pivotal texts for us to understand the whole of the Bible. If we get this wrong, we, we miss our way in the rest of scripture, so help us to have clear thinking, to understand truth and be transformed by it, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So imagine a, a movie scene with me. The lights are dimming, and then the first camera shot that you see in the movie is this kind of dusty street, windblown street, and there's tumbleweed bouncing its way across the screen. I'll just stop there for a second. What kind of movie are we watching? Right, it's a Western. You know that because there are built-in conventions for a Western. So just right there in the opening second of the movie, you know it's a Western and you know what else to expect. You can already conjure up, even though you haven't seen the town, you know what the town looks like, right? You know that when the camera starts panning down the town, it's gonna be a small town, a dusty town. You know there's probably gonna be some saloon doors involved here. There's probably gonna be an out-of-tune piano involved here, right? Just things that tropes, uh, conventions that are used in creating Westerns. You know that. And, and because it's trained you, right? You have this fine-tuned sense. A practice movie watcher has their senses trained what to expect in a Western. Well, Scripture has its own conventions rooted in the early chapters of Genesis. So throughout the Bible, how can the biblical writers evoke a sense of Eden? How can they get you smelling Eden by using words and crafting words and phrases? So they, how do they do that? They do that not by alluding to, to boots and spurs and saloon doors, but by alluding to gardens 
and mountains and streams of water flowing down and fruit and temples and bridegrooms and wedding ceremonies. And another big one, a big thread that runs all the way through the Bible, an illusion that runs through the Bible and is anchored here in Genesis 2 and 3 is trees. The trees play a prominent role in the whole of the Bible and it factors right here at the outset in the opening chapters of, of Genesis. So we're gonna see as we keep reading through the Bible, right? you're gonna see trees planted by streams of water that are always yielding fruit in their season. We're gonna see branches that bear fruit because they're rooted and they're abiding in the vine. There's all this language of vine and branches and trees and oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he might be glorified and, and so on and so forth, all the way running to the very last chapter of the Bible where Revelation chapter 22 verse one and two says, then he showed me the river of the water of life. A river of the water of life. We saw that here in Genesis chapter two. Clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for healing the nations. So we find two particular trees in Genesis chapter two, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If they eat from the first one, they live forever. If they eat from the second one, they die. They certainly die. That's what God said. If you, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And again, trees are gonna continue to feature prominently in the biblical story. Matter of fact, right after the Bible's mention of God and the Bible's mention of man, the third thing most mentioned in the Bible are trees. They're everywhere. The stump of Jesse, proud cedars of Lebanon that are hacked down, oaks of righteousness planted by the Lord. This passage describes the story of the fall of mankind which occurred at a tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the outline for our study of this passage is pretty straightforward what they did and what God has done. Starting with what they did. And what did they do? They rebelled. So it's rebellion right here in Genesis chapter three. This is a world-changing text and a world-changing historical event that actually happened. You look back at Genesis chapter two, if you've got your Bible open, I hope you do. Look back at chapter two, verse 16, and you see the command concerning the tree. The Lord God commanded the man, chapter two, verse 16, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. And then we come over, you fast forward, and God then creates Eve and so on. We've already looked at that. And then we come to chapter three, and we meet the crafty serpent in the very first verse of this chapter. Later on in scripture, we find out that this serpent is identified as none other than Satan, the enemy, the accuser, the deceiver. Matter of fact, again, the end of the Bible, Revelation 19 says, so the great dragon was thrown out, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. So that's the end of the Bible, and in a sense, it smells like Eden. It's pointing all the way back to where things broke. The very first words that came out of the serpent's mouth were deceptive words. If we summarize the action of our passage, it's basically this. The word of God was twisted and they were deceived. 
The word of God was twisted and they were deceived. Now let's just look at the text. Verse one, he said to the woman, the serpent says to the woman, did God really say? You see the tilt in those words. Did, did he actually, did you miss here? Maybe you misheard. Let's just roll that back and see if that's really what he said. Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? No, notice the, the mask of piety. It's just an inductive question. I'm just asking a question. I'm not leading with conclusions. I'm just leading with questions. Just asking you, did he really say that? And you can, you can see how sneaky that is on multiple levels. One, it's sneaky and it's strategic that he's talking to Eve, not talking to Adam. Why? Because Eve wasn't there when God gave the original command in chapter two, verse 16. She was created right after God gave the command to Adam. So only Adam was there when God gave the original command concerning not eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then God creates Eve, and the idea is Adam was supposed to relay that information, that crucial information, he was to convey that command to his wife Eve. And it's like the enemy sees the daylight between those two, and he sees an opportunity there. And it's as though he's saying, you know, God, God told Adam, unfortunately, he didn't, didn't tell you, maybe something was lost in translation. I mean, is that possible? Did God really say this? Is it possible maybe something was lost in translation? How, if you've ever played the game Telephone, right, where you, you start a message and then another person is hearing it from you and then they turn and they convey that message and then it gets conveyed down the line. And there are these very slight modifications unintentional modifications of the message to where once it comes out, eight people down the road, it's a totally different message. It seems like the enemy's just working on that and just saying, you know, may, you didn't originally hear this. Maybe something was lost in communication. Did God really say? So there's deception at work. There's, there's a kind of, he's trying to create this fog of confusion. Are you absolutely confident and sure? Notice even the term that the serpent uses to describe God. He's using the generic name for God, Elohim. That's why it just says God, even though in chapter two, it kept saying the Lord God, the Lord God, the Lord God. That's Yahweh Elohim, the covenant God, your, uh, your, your husband, your beloved. That's, that's Yahweh Elohim. He's the covenant God who's joined himself to you. And, and the serpent intentionally leaves off the Yahweh part the covenant name part, and goes with that generic, more distant creator uh, sense. He's using that term on purpose. You know, in the TV show, The Office, um, if the, the branch manager, Michael Scott, if he wants to shift blame, how he does that is he refers to his supervisors as corporate, right? So he'll say, got a phone call from corporate, and then he'll deliver bad news to the office. That it's really not me. Got a phone call from corporate, and it's really bad news, right? Yah Yahweh Elohim, again, it's that name that God gave to Israel when he made them his beloved people. The covenant name. It's the name that is used all throughout chapter two, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. Satan conveniently leaves out God's more intimate name and he says, did corporate tell you this? Did Elohim, that kind of creating distance with that term, did Elohim tell you this? And believe me, he, did, he noticed. It was no small victory when she adopts his exact terminology and she doesn't say, actually, Yahweh Elohim said 
She says, no, you're wrong. Let me correct that. Elohim said. In other words, she adopts his terms. She says, no, let me clarify. Corporate said this. That's no small victory. And then even in quoting the command, she adds something to the command that wasn't there in the beginning. God never said, neither shall you touch it. That was her addition. So you can already tell something's working in her mind, in her heart. This deception is creating a fog of confusion. Now she's adding. Now even the terms that she's using suggest that maybe God is stingy. You can't even touch this thing. Zap, he will kill you if you even touch it. Not eat it, but even if you touch it. I love Kent Hughes' commentary. He writes these words to kind of illustrate that. A father says to his young daughter, you and your friend Katie have been too noisy, so Katie will have to go home. Then his daughter runs to her mother crying, Daddy says I can't ever have Katie over again. When we don't like a prohibition or a warning, we magnify its strictness. The suggestion that our superior is unjust is a way we justify ourselves, right? So Eve magnifies God's strictness, and this seems to be another small victory. So the word of God was twisted and they were deceived. Next point is they disobeyed because they doubted God's goodness. So in a moment, she will take this fruit, she will eat the fruit, she will give it to her husband, he's gonna eat the fruit. By the way, Adam is there. You see him, he's standing right there in verse six. Not just in verse six, all the verbs that the serpent is using from verse one to five are second person plural verbs. They're y'all, right? Did God really say y'all can't eat from this tree? It's not a singular. They're both standing right there. Did he really say you guys can't eat from this tree? Who knows what Adam's doing? He's standing there, cat's got his tongue. We don't know why he's just standing there being quiet. What seems clear is Adam is not involved. Adam is not engaged. He is not in the fight. The enemy is giving a master class on deception and manipulation. His wife is trying to quote the original command that God told Adam before she even arrived on the scene. Honey, you can pipe in at any point. And there he is just just silent. And Satan can see that the fog of confusion has rolled in and they're wobbling and now he can let go of the mask of piety and he can give up the open-ended, inductive questions and, and he's emboldened and he flatly contradicts God's command in verse four. You see it there? No, you will not certainly die. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He's saying basically die let's not talk crazy. Let's, let's tone down the drama for just a second. Just look at this thing, right? What looks bad about it? It looks like all the rest of the fruit around here. What's so wrong with eating fruit? I thought he made everything and everything was good. At the end of every day, everything was good. Why is this not good? Why can't you eat this? Just use your own eyes and use your own brain for a second. Let's just think, why can't you eat this right now? You ever heard that before? He's still operating off the same playbook. A little pornography isn't gonna kill you. The human body's a beautiful thing. Or who is anybody to tell you what's right for you and what's wrong for you? 
Or wait, before you do something, you gotta go get permission from some old book? Friend, don't let the serpent put you in the spin cycle. Don't let him convince you that he's your new best friend and God is up to no good. Bad things grow out of thoughts like that. Right, this is one of his go-to moves. He's still using this move, left, right, and center. The moment she doubts the goodness of God, there's a sense in which the rest of the story writes itself, right? The verbs are punchy. She took and she ate, she gave and he ate, and then the result is their eyes were opened. The serpent said that. Now, in one sense, the promise was fulfilled. He said your eyes will be opened, and their eyes were opened, but not the way they thought. Because what's the first thing they saw with their brand new, wide open eyes is they saw they were naked. Their very first feeling after they disobeyed God was shame. That's not what they calculated. That's not what they thought was coming. They were naked. And what do they do? They hide from each other. They hide from God. They cover themselves with fig leaves, right? They're naked. They were naked before. Five minutes ago, they were naked, but they didn't even know it. There was a kind of childlike innocence, right? When you, when you drive down your street and you see that three-year-old boy who's loose and briefly unsupervised, and he is just, he's peeing in the front yard, right? When you see that happen, remember Eden. <laughs> That's how it used to be, and pray for the parents, <laughs> right? It's, it's the, it's fascinating what's happening here because this passage, as you keep reading Genesis chapter three, they hide from God, God seeks them out. Adam, where are you? And he, he eventually finds them and he says, why were you hiding from me? And they say, we hid because we were naked. And God says, who told you you were naked? You didn't know that before. The serpent got to you. Shame is on you. That's why you're hiding. Enemy uses the same tactic this week on you and me. Matt, before you pass this up, what's wrong with this? Did God really say? You just think about some of the things that God's word says that don't seem intuitive to us or to our culture. Did that passage about Jesus being the only way for sinful human beings to be right with God, that seems incredibly narrow-minded. Did God really say that? That passage that tells us God is good and he can be trusted even when life hurts. Really, Matt? Tell me, what about this situation of suffering in your life? What about this is good? I'll wait. Tell me what's good about this. Did God really say the only place that he has ordained for sexual intimacy is marriage between one man and one woman for life? Did God really say that? Is there another way to read those verses? Let's go back to the text. Let's find another way to read those verses. I think we can find a creative way to look at that. You might say, yeah, I, I feel it. I, I feel doubts. I, I feel that I'm standing against the winds of what the culture is saying in contrast to God's word. And I feel wobbly. I'll own it, I feel wobbly right now. Matt, what do I do if I'm wobbly? What do I do if I'm doubting? Fine, bring your doubts to God. It's what the book of Psalms largely is. It just gives you vocabulary so you can say, Lord, why didn't you show up? 
Can you help me? Because I don't get it. That's what wobbly people do. They run to God with their wobbliness, with their doubts and their fears. It's a whole different story than what's happening here in the garden. A big part, friends, of your discipleship this week, practically speaking, will mean ending conversations started by an enemy who wants to deceive you. Don't serve him tea and engage in a long, drawn-out dialogue. End the conversation. Believe the word of God. It is true. Christians, let's help each other end conversations with the deceiver. Let's help each other fight the fight of faith this week. Let's gently come alongside and help one another untwist the twisted words of the enemy. That's what Christians do. That's what the church is all about. In other words, that's just another way of saying, let's be the church. What's your small group doing if we're not doing this? What's biblical community if we're not doing this tonight? When we gather together for our faith family gathering and we welcome new members, what promises are we making other than promising this? We're gonna be here in your life for this. We're gonna read the church covenant tonight. We intend to do this together. We're saying to one another, not called to fight the deceiver alone. I'm here, you're here, let's do this. Let's grow, let's be strong together. Death came into the world because of failure at a tree. So there are two trees in the garden, the tree of life, you eat from it and you live. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you eat from it and you die. It seems like a no-brainer, right? Choice was given to our first parents. Will you trust me and live or will you choose self-rule and autonomy leading to death? It's ultimatum language. That ultimatum language will track, again, it's a pattern throughout the Bible that's gonna remind you, it's gonna waft of Eden. It's gonna waft of Genesis 3 all the way throughout the Bible. So in our own house growing up, uh, in my home, we did not have fancy art. Uh, we, had, um, we had like a family portrait and then we had paintings by Nanny, my grandma, my dad's mom. She was not well-trained. Uh, and you could see that. If you knew anything about art, you'd be like, it would take three suns to create the light sources uh, in this particular picture. Like you couldn't have light coming from all those different angles. Nanny didn't know that, so she just painted a boat on the water, right? And then there's another one down the hall of a, you know, something else, nature scene. So that was, that was a kind of our art on the walls at the Mason house growing up was a family portrait and then three of Nanny's paintings. Um, and then there was one, the most prominently placed piece in our house was a scripture verse stitched on fabric inelegantly uh, with a very basic frame. And you walked into the house in the front door and there on the wall right next to you were these words. Choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And it, it's still moving to me to think about those words on our family wall because that was the air my parents wanted us to breathe. Everything was this, kids, know the Lord. Above all things, we don't care about accolades, we don't care about worldly success, know the Lord. 
Serve the Lord, follow the Lord, worship the Lord, trust his good plans. In an ancient garden, there was a tree of choosing and Joshua is here reminding them, we've been here before, we've been at places of choosing. He's evoking Eden language, Genesis 3 language. You can choose life, you can choose death. As for me and my house, we're gonna choose the Lord. Friends, we will we will stumble and we will fall because sin is real and the tempter has been honing his craft for a long, long time. But when we stumble, let's stumble forward. And when we fall, let's look to Christ. Let's lay aside every weight and sin. Let's get to repenting. Let's get to believing. Let's look to the cross. Here's the glorious reality that's tucked into our text. Adam and Eve didn't have to earn God's blessing or God's love or God's favor. It was there. It wasn't like the scenario back there was, you know, avoiding the fruit was this self-salvation project. That's, that's what made the serpent's words so incredibly deceptive because God didn't say, on Monday morning, if you don't eat the forbidden fruit, I'll bless you on Monday evening and then we'll do it again on Tuesday and on Wednesday. You'll earn the blessing by avoiding the tree every day. No, the blessing was already theirs. That's exactly the point. The word was, eat everything in sight. I've tricked the place out for you. I've packed the pantries full, the fridges full. Enjoy everything. You like oranges? There's an orange grove. You like peaches? There are peaches. Kale didn't come till later, after the fall, right? But you got oranges, you got peaches, you got all this stuff, right? And then, and then God says, as it were, look, trust me with this one. This one's not good for you. I want you to trust me. But hey, fridge is full, pantry's full, load up. Does your Christianity feature what God prohibits over what God has provided? That was the enemy's first move. Feature what God prohibits rather than what God has provided. So what they did, rebellion, and what God has done, redemption. So after they eat the fruit, they rebel against God They choose their own way and then God comes and he tells them what you just brought down on the world, what you've just unleashed on the world. Sin and misery are coming pouring into the cosmos because of what you've done at this tree. And yet, we're gonna see it in a couple weeks, God issues this surprising promise. The offspring of the woman who will crush the serpent's head, and in the process of his triumph over the serpent, his own heel will be bruised, so he will be triumphant in his own suffering. A rescuer was going to be coming. That word is promised right here in Genesis chapter three, verse 15. So what happens? God sees that his world is infected by sin. Our relationship with him is broken. Adam and Eve are eventually driven out of the garden temple. It's a garden temple, right? We saw that. It's facing east. The cherubim is there, stationed from the east, just like the temple later on. So they're driven out, they're exiles from the presence of God. But from that moment forward, you keep reading your Bible and God keeps saying to humans, sin's not gonna have the last word. My purpose is not done. I'm gonna make a way to bring you near again. Yes, they're driven out of the garden temple, but later on, what's God gonna do? 
He's gonna institute something called the tabernacle, something called the temple. And as the priest, you look at how the temple is constructed and the art that's hanging in the temple, the furniture pieces in the temple, so that as the priest came into the holy place, those spaces had Eden written all over it. Garden imagery everywhere, vines and pomegranates and cherubim facing east. The lampstand was hammered gold, shaped like branches with buds and petals shaped like almond blossoms. All of that is as suggestive as Eden, of Eden, as boots and spurs and saloon doors tell you that you're watching a Western. It is pointing back to what happened and where we were at the beginning. The temple imagery is saying there's a way back to Eden. All these images in the Old Testament, they're pointing forward to the arrival of the one, Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one who is promised in Genesis chapter three. We're gonna look at that more in depth in the next two weeks. But just drink these in before we're done. Jesus Christ comes as the second Adam. The apostle Paul would write in Romans chapter five, for just as through one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners. So also through one man's obedience, that's the second Adam, the many will be made righteous. The law came along to multiply the trespass, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the gospel. Jesus, the Messiah, enters the world. He is the God-man, and he's here to create a new template, a new human. The old template was broken. He's here to create a new way to be human. So Jesus comes, but unlike Adam and Eve, he doesn't enter an Edenic paradise. He comes into the wilderness, right? He's baptized, and then he comes into the wilderness, and he's hungry because he hasn't eaten for 40 days because he's depending on God, and he's fasting, and Satan pulls up in the wilderness and says, did God really say? Old question, right? Did he really say eating is all that bad? Command these stones to become bread. Why would you have such abilities and not be permitted to use them? You've got the gift. Use the gift. So we got another Adam who succeeded at every point where the first Adam failed and he was tested in another garden. In the garden of Gethsemane. Again, gardens smell like Eden. Gardens are reminding us of where this all started. The garden of Gethsemane. And he asked Jesus, our savior, says, Father, is there any way for this cup to pass from me? And what was the cup? The cup was the curse that was unleashed in Genesis chapter three. And Jesus knew this cup has to be drained in order to undo what Adam and Eve unleashed in Genesis chapter three. The first Adam said, as it were, not what you will, but what I will. And that brought the curse down on the world. The second Adam, Jesus holding the cup of the curse in his trembling hand in another garden said, not what I will but your will be done. Whereas our first parents lost everything at a tree, Jesus won everything for us at another tree. Isn't it amazing that Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, 
He holds out the emblems of his own suffering, his body and his blood, the the bread and the cup, and he says to his disciples two words, take and eat. When we come to the Lord's table, we'll do that next week, when we come to the Lord's table, Jesus says to Christians, take and eat. I love what theologian and pastor Ligon Duncan pointed out, take and eat. The last time we heard those words, it didn't work out so well. She took and she ate. So small a thing it seemed, taking that fruit, so hard in undoing. It took God sending his son into the world and to the cross before take and eat became verbs of redemption instead of verbs of ruin. Two trees, one that brought the curse and another that brought salvation. You ever wonder why the New Testament authors love calling the cross a tree? As if, if you didn't know anything about the cross and you heard Acts 13, 29, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. You wouldn't be picturing necessarily a cross. If you didn't know that that's what it was, you'd be picturing them taking him down from a tree with branches on it and all the rest, right? They're using the term tree. He himself, Peter writes, bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why do they love to use tree language to describe the cross? The tree of God's judgment was embraced by the second Adam. And when Jesus hung on that tree, the tree of judgment became a tree of life. That's the glorious thing that happens in the cross of Jesus. One of the great old hymns reflects on this. Years I spent in vanity and pride. Caring not, my Lord was crucified. Knowing not, it was for me he died at Calvary. By God's word at last, my sin I learned. Then I trembled at the law I'd spurned till my guilty soul imploring turned to Calvary. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. So what do we do? Here's what we do, church. Let's renounce the lies of the enemy this week. Let's end conversations that he wants to start with us. Church, let's help one another fight the fight of faith. Let's worship the one who undid the curse by bearing it in our place. Why would we despair over all that was lost at the tree in Eden when we can revel in the glory of all that was won by Christ at the cross?